Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 95 of the Podium and Panel Podcast, an unusual Monday evening taping. Thanks to Pat for uh, allowing me to get my son moved and back today and tired, but uh, the show goes on. Uh, we continue to see a number Better of cases. Better than never. Uh, right, that's right. What our fan, that's what our fans will say. Our detractors right. will say they're back. Right. <laughs> Should have taken a week off or, or forever. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we, we, uh, it's been a busy week or a couple of weeks in Illinois, especially at, at the appellate levels, uh, the appellate districts uh, courts. Uh, we've seen a large number of uh, new cases argued, which is good. Uh, the Supreme Court's done for uh, this year, and the Illinois Supreme Court will hear more cases uh, this week. But uh, in any event, our first case today is a COVID-19 business interruption case involving the contamination uh, provision, Firebirds versus Zurich which is a first district case. Our second case today is FB. And, and, and just so you don't think we're boring you, this is slightly, this is different than the other it's cases. A, it's slightly different, right. although probably the same result, but uh, mm-hmm. we'll see. But uh, yeah. Uh, second case is a, is an interesting uh, case with this, a guy who fell, FB McAfoos and Company versus Copen, a fifth district case. And our third case today is Mazerum. Is that how you pronounce it? Mazerum, Mazerum, so. and Mazerum versus Decatur Memorial Hospital from the Fourth District. And our first case, a somewhat unique version of a COVID nineteen business interruption argument was had before the Illinois Appellate Court First District in Firebirds versus Zurich last week. And the argument, the insurer argued that the contamination exclusion barred coverage, but never made the argument until oral argument that the insuring agreement of direct physical loss or damage to property was not triggered. The contamination exclusion is argued to be ambiguous and has language that bars damage caused by a covered cause of loss. Justice Mikva, as Pat will talk about shortly, latched onto this language to assert that it was broader than the language of the insuring agreement. The exclusion also requires presence of the virus, but it is unclear where the virus uh, needs to be present on the premises or just present generally and puts the insurer in the unique position of asserting that the virus was actually at the covered premises. So an interesting argument that they uh, had to make. The issues in the case are further complicated by a claim change in the language of the policy that the insured contends further supports their reading and issues related to a choice of law issue between North Carolina and Illinois law. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this case. Thanks, Dan. I know we've talked a lot about COVID-19 business interruption cases, and perhaps that's we're a bit biased because we both do insurance law. But there is no bigger insurance issue than this that has occurred in the public eye in forever. Uh, maybe the one-off of the Trade Center, uh, the World Trade Center is being knocked down, whether that was one occurrence or two. Right. But, but pe- people this, really weren't focused on that because it really just involved the owner and whether he was getting paid twice or once. And it wasn't exactly. like this where it affects it affected so many businesses and people. 
thousands, million, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of businesses. Uh, and really, the and so we focused on it a lot because the cases have got argued a lot. And this is a slightly different case. It's There's a ton of issues here. And, and there's no way we can really do it justice. Indeed, it was clear from the oral argument, the advocates couldn't do it justice in a, in a very, in a, in a less than hour oral argument. But so let's focus on some things that make this one really interesting. And Dan touched on some of them. The first thing is this very bizarre thing that happened. In the middle of the oral argument, and it took up most of the Appley's argument, was, oh, by the way, the cover, the insuring agreement isn't triggered here. And Justice Mikva, who was really the only justice that was at, that was active at all in this oral argument. Which was interesting. Yeah. It, that's she oftentimes is very active. She is. She was she was active when she was in the circuit court. Um, uh, and when you appeared in front of her, I appeared in front of her quite a bit when she was in the circuit court and she's very active. She was very active in this particular argument. And she's like, well, hold it now, counsel. You, you guys didn't raise this. And I, and I just took a double take. I was like, you didn't raise that the insurance you had to get to, you, you were, you were putting all of your eggs in the virus exclusion in an, in an additional coverage. Because there's also a time element coverage here that's being sought. It's like all of these coverages, they first have to fall within the insuring agreement of, of, of direct physical loss or damage to property. The language you've heard over and over and over again. And they're right that the appellate court can affirm on any basis in the record. And the reason they gave for not raising it was, well, there was no case law in Illinois on the topic. Yeah, so didn't stop right. anybody else from raising it. Uh, I, we'll see. So then this, you come to this language in this contamination policy or coverage. It says damage caused by a covered cause of loss. And what Justice Mikva said is that's broader than direct physical loss or damage to property. It's damage caused. So I think Justice Mikva was clear. She's like, well, the adding of of plexiglass and the rearranging of your chairs, that is in direct physical loss or damage to property. But damage caused, that could be damage caused because you suffered injury in having less space you could use, having to put up the plexiglass, that was damage caused by, because it, it's economic damage in that sense, even though it's not physical, because it's, it's not direct physical da- loss or damage too. It's damage in its general sense. So it, it, it's just like, well, that that's co- that might be covered here. Um, and then you come to, well, the, the, vi- you, the, the shoe was on the other, the, the roles were flipped with regards to presence of the virus because the virus has to be present, but it doesn't say where. It doesn't say present on the premises. It just says present. So present across the street, premises in Mongolia, premise, what, premise, present where? exactly is this virus present that's causing i mean it doesn't make any sense that present in mongolia is going to trigger coverage i mean it doesn't it's got to be on your premises so it puts the insurer in the very odd position of saying it's on your premises and therefore it's not covered (laughs) which is the opposite of what a lot of has happened in a lot of these cases if you remember you didn't even plead that it was present on your property so how could it have caused direct physical loss or damage to your property so they puts them in the very odd position of saying it's present on your property, and therefore, because it's present, 
it's not covered under this contamination uh, coverage because the contamination coverage excludes viruses. Very strange. Uh, yep. And and then we have this this contaminant. There's it's this Louisiana exclusion, and apparently originally it didn't say Louisiana. It just said contaminate. It just said exclusion, and it didn't specify what it was for. And then it changed in the middle of the policy term, which happened to be in the middle of the pandemic. And the question was, does it all apply all you know for everywhere, or does it only apply? after you made the change and how do you interpret that? What do you do with that? And I thought the insurers had one good point. They said, you know, what we change later doesn't affect what it means at the time that it's issued. Uh, it, it, it means what it means. Uh, we'll see how that goes. They may not even yeah. have to reach that issue if they decided on the insuring agreement. And then of course you have this also very strange thing with, again, a choice of law issue, maybe of between North Carolina and Illinois. If you recall, the Eastern Entertainment case uh, that was in the Seventh Circuit uh, with, against Houston uh, casualty also dealt with a North Carolina versus Illinois law issue. I don't know it what did. this is with North Carolina insureds filing lawsuits in Illinois and getting their cases to the appellate court, but that seems to be on the menu for some reason. It's somewhat unclear as to why North Carolina is the is the state where this is from which these are happening. Uh, and then so the council tried to argue that North Carolina is a little different than it Illinois could be. law, so the choice of law matters. In this case, it could be because Zurich is headquartered, their North American headquarters here. No, no, and, I know why yeah. they're getting sued right. here. It just happens right. to be that these just, are both just, North Carolina. Which is odd, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's certainly true. That Zurich, If you remember, one of the first Seventh Circuit cases, the Crescent Hotel case, was against Zurich. They brought it here in, in, in the Northern District, or maybe they brought it in state court and got removed to the Northern District. You're right. They filed here because this is where Zurich's North American headquarters are. No, yep. no, no, no doubt. That's if you were choosing a venue, and you were the and you were the policyholder lawyers, you would choose to file in Illinois or Cook County, and then if it gets removed to federal court, so be it. You would choose Illinois uh, to try to to try to right. get them if you if you had the choice, and they did. So they they chose to file here. Um, so anything else to add on uh, this Firebirds versus Zurich case, Dan? No, a fascinating case, though, and fascinating, like I said, it's a, it's I, a I bit really, different. I would really encourage people that are interested in this issue to listen to the oral argument. It was a very interesting oral argument. I thought the advocates did a very, it's not your typical argument of this kind. Right. The advocates did a really good job, and Justice Mikva really gave the third degree to both of them. <laughs> yep. she, she really did. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with F.B. McAfoo's versus Kobe. <laughs> back for segment two of episode 95 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're covering F.B. McAfoo's versus Copen. What is the proper role of the distraction exception to the open and obvious rule in the analysis of premises liability, and how can distraction be proved? That is, the, that is essentially the question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court 5th District decides F.B. McAfoo's, I just love saying it, uh, versus <laughs> Copen that was argued last week. The plaintiff fell and broke his leg on a step that he claimed was not properly marked and could have been protected by a sliding gate. He was, to use counsel's words, admiring the tractors at the time of his fall. Or was he? <laughs> at the bench trial, 
The plaintiff gave contradictory testimony about where he was looking at the time of his fall. The judge, in a written opinion, entered judgment in favor of the defendant, finding that the condition was was not unreasonably dangerous and therefore not a breach. The plaintiff focused most of the argument, however, on the distraction exception, though, which leaves me confused as doesn't that go to the duty element, not the breach element. Given the standard review of manifest weight of the evidence, the plaintiff has a difficult cast a difficult task in this case. Dan, tell us about the oral argument and all this admiring. Well, as you as you noted, um, and and as uh, McAfoo's uh, counsel made clear, they they made the same argument, right? It's it's you you don't get the duty if there's no uh, if, if in the first instance. Um, the, the, you know, the, 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 there's no duty there. So, uh, as you said, repeatedly, <laughs> the plaintiff's uh, counsel kept saying he was admiring the tractors. And um, so uh, that was <laughs> repeated uh, several times. Um, in some ways, this case reminded me of the uh, Speedway uh, case, Pat, because we had, we had some uh, evidence, one side of this uh, ramp, and stairway was painted yellow. It was faded. Uh, the other side had no paint on it. One of the justices talked about various standards. Sometimes they were used yellow. Uh, other times there was red used as paint to, to distinguish and put danger. Um, danger the, the, Robinson. Right. And this the, this was a patio of a, of a hardware store. Um, in fact, I thought the rebuttal, I thought it was, was a nice uh, kind of line. She said, I'm sure they've got paint in there. They could have painted the other side yellow. And what but one of the justices said, okay, if 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 the side was painted yellow, if he was literally looking over his shoulder at these tractors or admiring the tractors, not paying attention to this uh step in the in the ramp, uh, what did it have mattered? And and uh the the appellant's counsel tried to make the argument. She said, Well, you know, when there's paint like that, it's highlighted. And so again, like the Speedway case, where there was a discrepancy about whether the the uh, stair, you know, the the grate was was painted or, or was faded. Um, there was also some discussion in this case that the step and there was a differentiated coloring, so that even without the yellow paint on the side of it, he would have known. Um, he had frequented this place before. And uh, one of the justices asked, "Was was he not? Was he distracted when he was coming in, looking at these tractors?" And uh, I, I was trying to imagine this patio. So that you, the patio leaves from the store, and then he's got all these tractors out, which he admitted were there for the enticement for people to admire these tractors. And you know, um, it's Benton, Illinois. They like is. tractors. It is. <laughs> I, I went to school in Monmouth, Monmouth, Illinois, and same thing. Central big farming community, tractors, and John Deere is king. You know, so it's well. There, it's all... this was actually this is actually a Kubota uh, dealership, so not right. John Deere Kubota, but I know. But yeah, I'm just saying, like they love tractors. So, um, in any event, uh, as you said, and the appellant tried to say, you know, looking at the four factors, you know, the first is foreseeability. She said that the owner admitted. That it was foreseeable uh, that these things would be that there'd be a distraction, and and that the person would be enticed. Uh, the second is is that it's possible someone would sustain an injury uh, that's similar to the injury that this guy uh, suffered. Uh, appellant, of course, claimed that that was admitted as well. Um, 
they and then like I said, the the one justice cut in after those two factors and said, you know, it's not developed in the record. What what was the reason for the paint? Um, uh, and again, the, this whole thing about him being distracted at the time of injury. There's a case called Ward, which involved a a pole, and the guy was admiring something, and he turned around and bam, hit himself in the pole. He was and, carrying. Uh, this is Ward versus Kmart. He's carrying yeah. out some stuff and. He runs into the pole or something, yeah. and and and, and the, he was distracted, right? Um, when he was carrying the stuff, and, and he right, injured. and uh, there, uh, there, there, the court found that he had created his own distraction because he had the packages, and and, and the appellant was trying to distinguish again here that the, the this distraction was made by the owner of the store and not by that person, um, and who hasn't been distracted like that and knocked themselves silly with a pole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think in Ward, I think in Ward, they found there was a distraction. I think I think you're referring to the Bruns case, Brunt, yeah, uh, Bruns versus yeah. Centralia, which came up. That, that's Gates. right. Yeah. So Bruns is the Supreme Court case that deals with this, where the woman trips and falls. She's looking up at the eye store of all things. She's going to the eye store and she's not looking, and she trips and falls on this. And the court said, "Hold it! She created her own distraction." Ward is actually a case where they found in favor of the plaintiff. That the distraction was created by the store. That's right. Caused the plaintiff to fall. Yeah. Um, so yeah. In any event, it's Centralia was yeah. Gates was very focused on how do I not get reversed again? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and, and and that was something that came up too because in in uh, it was it was a ward case that was overturned, right? Or is that Centralia? Bruns. It was Centralia. Bruns. Bruns, Bruns. versus Centralia is the one yeah. that overturned. Yeah. Like a 2017 or 18 case. Yeah. And they laughed about it. Very fresh in Justice Cates' mind. Yeah. And one of the other justices said, I was on that opinion as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. And uh, probably fair enough to get overturned on this one if, if they don't get it right. Um, <laughs> That's what I'm worried about. Right? Right. One of, one of the issues here, and, and again, I don't know how old Mr. Copen was, but but the – yeah. And the testimony was that, that he was very nervous at trial, um, that he was asked specifically – about whether he was distracted or where he was looking. And at one point in his testimony, uh, he, he mentioned that he was, in fact, looking at the step right before he stepped down and, and right before he fell. And he fell like eight inches, but, you know, eight inches for anybody, that's enough to – he broke his femur. And and one of the responses, and I thought it was a decent response by the appellant, was, look, he was in shock. He broke his leg. And so, you know, he, he knew that he had been looking at the tractors. When you when you fall like that, you're going to be distracted and, and not necessarily be cohesive in terms of what the hell you remember from a couple of years ago when you when you when you hurt yourself. So um, he give he gave contradictory testimony, and so it's the job of the court, which is really the problem for the plaintiff here, is sorting out. You know, the trial court held that you know certain things that were adverse to the plaintiff uh, on in terms of evaluating his credibility and evaluating his testimony. And it's a finder of fact. It's a judge. That's yeah. a big problem for the plaintiff. And, and as you mentioned, manifest weight of the evidence. Um, can, you, you, the the appellate court should only overturn it if it's abundantly clear uh, that it's it's completely wrong and that that nobody could have made those reasonable assumptions based on the evidence presented. Uh, as you mentioned, it was a written opinion and it was reasoned. It talked about taking into account all the facts and factors. And pictures were attached. There were pictures at the appellate. So they had pictures and photos of this uh, location and, and, uh, and all the things going on. So 
Yeah, I, I think from the from the perspective, as you mentioned, it's it's a very tough battle. I think for the plaintiff in this case. Um, yeah, and at one point, you know, the the the, the uh, Justice Cates again, she said, "Well, you know, uh, uh, we we could in fact find for." You know, the, against the manifest way of the evidence of this and this and this, but I I think that's a, a hard hard hurdle for them, and, and uh, so I, I think it's let's everything we've talked about, just as everything they talked about at the oral argument was about duty. Duty is an eight-inch step an unreasonably dangerous condition, and I don't think so. I, I don't see how it is, and so right. let's just let's presume. That they had a duty, a duty to do what? And then right. did they breach the duty by having to step on their property? I, I, that's ultimately what the court, the trial court decided on. Is right. It said it's not unreasonably dangerous. Right. And, we and, encounter steps all the time. Right. If every step is an unreasonably dangerous condition, <laughs> we're never going to, the, the lawsuits are never going to end. Right. And you don't get the distraction if you if you don't get past that fundamental element well, so it's just a different element and i i don't see i i really have a hard time understanding this the other thing i want to add is here i'm a bit sympathetic to the plants they obviously agreed to a bench trial they waived a jury. right right it, it seems that they did that in the pandemic and they right. likely did that because they couldn't have gotten a jury in any time any reasonable time and given the plaintiff's age that um, they may have been worried about him being alive and being able to, because they can't win their case without it. They've got right. to have it. Now. Right. And so they may have been forced to take this to a bench trial, even though they surely would have preferred a, a, ben, a jury trial because they really didn't have any choices. Uh, right. If this, if this gentleman is as old as it was suggested um, and they were worried about having any possibility of a, of a recovery. Um, so I, I think that's something to keep in mind here. That's why they, they chose a bit under compulsion because the court couldn't provide a jury uh, to take this because no one would want to try this to a bench. <laughs> Nobody. Not this right. Case. No, I, no, I agree. And uh, yeah, I'm sympathetic to plaintiff as well. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes things happen. They do. So with that, uh, we'll, we'll uh, come back with our third segment and discuss Decatur Memorial Hospital. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 95 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're going to cover Decatur Memorial. Does Illinois Supreme Court Rule 224 apply for the adoptive parents of a disabled child to obtain the delivery records from the hospital where the child was born to potentially bring a medical malpractice action, where those records will include the health information of the biological mother, as well as potentially mental health and drug information that has not been consented to? And the parents have identified 17 parties possibly responsible for the potential birth injury. That is a question to be addressed when the Illinois Appellate Court 4th District decides Masram versus Decatur Memorial Hospital. 
The biological mother who was incarcerated gave birth to a child who was adopted thereafter. Pursuant to the adoption proceeding, her parental rights were terminated. The adoptive parents sought the child's medical records under Rule 224, which states, a person or entity who wishes to engage in discovery for the sole purpose of ascertaining the identity of one who may be responsible in damages may file an independent action for such discovery. The hospital refused to produce the records and following an order compelling the production, appealed. There was no in-camera inspection of the records taking place. Prior to filing the petition, the parents sought the records but were denied. They did not invoke 735 LCS 5-8-2001 until their response brief in the appellate court did not file the respondent in discovery action under 735 LCS 5-2-402. A lot of questions to be addressed in this interesting case. Pat, tell us about oral argument. So, Dan, um, let me, we got to really understand these different mechanisms here and understand also that the plaintiffs, because of the disability of this child, have got a very long statute of limitations. They may never, the statute may never run if she's that, if this child is that disabled. But they have at least, she's two years old now, at least 18 years to go, two years after she reaches majority. So yep. a long time. The other issue that the plaintiff has is that they can't just file a suit against the doctors because they can't get an affidavit of merit under 2-622 of the Code of Civil Procedure, which is an affidavit that has to be provided that says they have a medical professional who will say that this doctor or this mm-hmm. hospital or this allied medical professional committed to this act, these acts of medical malpractice because they can't get the records to figure out if the injury was caused by the birth, uh, any malpractice during the birth. It's a difficult, Be- difficult kind of logic loop. It, it is. It, it's a real problem. So we let's start with 224, which is the action they brought. This is for the purposes of identifying people that are potentially responsible. Well, They've identified 17 people. Now, I'm not, it's not clear in what context they identified these 17 people because the only two entities that were named was the Department of Corrections, who apparently complied, and Decatur Memorial Hospital, who didn't. And they didn't because they couldn't, because these medical records are intermingled between the records that relate to the mother, the records that relate to the baby, and the records that are combined because they're kind of intermingled, uh, the two. Um now, there's a case that says that the records, the birth records belong to the child, but there are more than just met, there's more than just health records. That's where that are covered under HIPAA. HIPAA controls medical, personal, uh, pr- uh, personal health information. But mental health records, drug records, potentially AIDS records are all covered by state law all kinds of other protections are all governed under state law. The federal, the fed, the feds have nothing to do with that. Um, so the, and there's big penalties for producing records in this context. If you don't protect the mother's records, now they could go get a, a authorization from her and get a waiver to produce them. But it's unclear if they did any of that or if they even needed to, the trial court said produce, told the hospital produce the records. There was no in-camera inspection. In other words, there was no redaction of the medical records. And frankly, the hospital, think about it from their perspective, there's reason to believe that this, the mother, birth mother was a drug user. 
they're going to want her medical records, complete medical records, mental health, and in particular drug history to come in because right. they that may be they may use that to say that's the reason why this baby uh, has some of the at least some if not all of these birth defects or whatever the problems are it was not, it was not articulated what the particular problem that the child had and maybe those problems are related to drug use maybe they're not it's unclear we don't know right um, but there's other mechanisms the plaintiff could have used to get these records. For example, under the, the statute that Dan cited, you can send a, re- a letter to the to the hospital or healthcare provider to provide their records. They have to provide the records within, within 30 days. They can charge, yes, but they have to produce them. And if they don't, you can sue them and get your fees. They didn't invoke the statute until the response brief in the appellate court. They also could have used, if they could have identified at least one defendant to sue, uh make them all respondents of discovery. And you can take the full panoply of discovery of a respondent discovery. Respondent discovery is a very unique Illinois procedure that allows you to name a defendant you think might be liable. And then you take discovery for them. It can include written discovery and requests to, it can include requests to admit typically, but depositions it can include. You can take the person's deposition before you've ever decided whether to name them as a defendant or not. And then you file a motion to convert them. Uh, and, and upon uh, showing of probable cause that you have a reason to convert them, which is a, a issue for a different case that got argued recently. We're not going to cover this week, but we may cover in the future uh, if it doesn't get decided first. Very complex case involving the, uh, the standard for converting someone to a, a direct defendant. But that's another procedure they could have potentially used to try to figure out which of these defendants, because they didn't just ask for medical records. They issued the full medical malpractice discovery. So the Illinois Appellate Court, strike that Illinois Supreme Court, has standard medical malpractice discovery that it has drafted that's in the Supreme Court rules. And they issued that discovery, apparently, all objected to because it's improper under a Section 224 petition, which should only, a Rule 224 petition, I should say, which only is for the identity of witnesses. You identified defendants, not witnesses, defendants, potential defendants. You've identified people. What the heck else do you need? Uh Yes, they need the records. I get that. But the, um, they, I just don't see how they used all of the things that they could have used. Now, it was quite clear in the oral argument that the plaintiff has one justice. I think it's Justice uh, Holder White. And the defendant has one justice. I think it's, I think it's Judge Dar- uh, DeArmond. I think. There's another justice. It's a little unclear where he, where he sits. Uh, but it's one-to-one right now. Uh, It's one-to-one, it seems like. And the way the justices were asking questions, we talk about this sometimes, where the justices are asking questions to argue with each other through their questioning of the advocates, which is exactly, it was like like ping pong, back back and forth between Justices Holder White and uh, Darman. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this opinion, uh, how this opinion comes out, I, I do sympathize with the plaintiffs. They're in a real, they're in a real difficult situation. Yeah. They can't file a six twenty two. I get that. They don't have the records, but how can the hospital be made to produce these records? They are subjected. They could be subjected to all kinds of liability if they produce records of this birth mother, and then they could be left in a situation where if they produce the records. They're left without one of their principal defenses. 
They can see the records. They can see that they've got all kinds. They can't produce it. They can't use it because they don't have her. So you can see how they're going to be asked to fight this case with one hand tied behind their back. It puts right. them in a horrible position, just as bad as it puts the plaintiff in a position, a terrible position. I can't believe this has never come up before. I've never seen this particular situation come up before. It'll be interesting to see how the court resolves this. I, I see a petition for leave to appeal coming eventually. Yeah, I do too. I do too. This is, this is not going to end at the appellate court. And just to give you an idea, Section 224 petitions are something that are litigated quite often in Illinois. The debt versus Constellation Energy case was a 224 petition case that just came down a couple weeks ago. So 224 is not unknown to the Supreme Court. They may be getting another one when this decision finally comes down, no matter who wins it. Um, this is not over. No. Um, and you may also see a rec- this may go- this could also go away if they issue the uh, the request under five five slash eight two zero one, and you may see another case because they may because the hospital is not producing these records without the right. authorization of the mother, and they'll take whatever penalty comes. Right, uh, it seems uh, to, to fight that, but a very very interesting and frankly important case. Uh, to figure out what happened here. Dan, uh, anything else to add on this one? Nope. I think you covered it well. Okay. So that brings us to a BI uh, business interruption for COVID case. We've covered one already, but Dan, anything else to add from this week? Uh, continues as we've discussed at the appellate level. I sent you a, a, a report a, a column earlier today. The 11th Circuit uh, dismissed or affirmed four dismissals against from four insurers from Florida. Right. Um, so it continues. Um, it we have seen some policyholder findings in some state courts, but overwhelmingly continue to favor the insurers. And as we've talked about, Pat, even if they get past motions to dismiss and, and uh, to that level, it's very difficult. It's going to be very difficult for them to, you know, prove their case and, and, and be as victorious. One advocate put it, and what advocate put it at this point, they are swimming upstream. Yep, for sure. And those so, findings so far, those recent findings you're referring to, are all at the trial or district court level. Right, right. Not that, you know, they're wins, but they're, right. they're not at the appellate level. And there's been occasional ones of those, but, you know, few and far between still. So So that brings us to uh, the, um, that brings us to, for our uh, prediction, sure to go wrong. Do you want to do our predictions from this week, Dan? Sure. Okay. Some tough so, cases. Well, uh, the first one I, I, is uh, is Firebirds. I think that's getting affirmed. Affirmed. I think Copen is getting affirmed. I think so too. All right, now we come to the hard one. <laughs> I don't know what Mazarin what Mazarin's going to be do. I I, I I don't either. There's too many. The, the, there's I I say we punt. I, I say we punt too, and when it, if it gets petition, if it goes up to the Supreme Court, we'll 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 be braver. But but it's it, I think it's tough. I think it is one one, and it's it's who, who knows where the third is going, and it's uh, anyone's guess. You know, no real clues of, of where he's at. So that that's that's right. Uh, so that brings us to our prediction: sure to go wrong uh, for our our actual picks. Uh, we had several cases come out. I, I think I'm doing I'm doing the math on the fly because I posted one this morning, yep. and then another one came out this afternoon just before we started recording. So Dan is one thirty six point five, twenty one point five, and seven. I am hundred and thirty five point five, twenty two point five, and seven. 
So here, here are the cases. Uh, the first is McCarthy versus Union Pacific. Uh, Dan, do you want to tell uh, the, the folks about this one? This is actually the topic of my column for the week in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Sure. Um, this, sure. This, this was the, a railroad case in the Federal Employers Liability Act. The uh, appellate court uh, found that the circuit court did not err in denying the defendant railroad's motion for a summary, a judgment notwithstanding the verdict on the plaintiff's claim under FILA. Uh, because irrespective of any potential failure of evidence regarding railroad's direct negligence, there was evidence in the record upon which a reasonable jury could find vicarious liability on the part of the railroad for the negligent or intentional acts of its employee and in injuring the plaintiff. However, the circuit court erred and denied the motion to defendant's motion for new trial because of the plaintiff's inflammatory and improper closing argument, which violated an order in limine and denying the defendants a fair trial. Um, this was an example of, as I say in my column, the reptile arguments on steroids. Right. This goes, the court quotes the arguments that were made in closing argument by plaintiff's counsel for pages. Um, and the key was that unlike some other cases that we've discussed and we've used the term, if you don't ask, you don't get, they promptly objected, not to everything, but then at the end they moved for a mistrial and said all that was... Uh, no good. Um, not unlike what happened in my cousin Vinny during the opening argument where the prosecutor moves to strike the entirety of uh, uh, Gambini's um, <laughs> Gambini's or I'm sorry, his uh, uh, Callow's opening argument and uh, he does it immediately. It's stricken. You get the idea. The next case that came down is uh, Paradigm versus West Bend, which was a Seventh Circuit COVID-19 case dealing with child care facilities. And the court said, basically said, you know, this was not, um, there was no direct physical loss or damage to property and there wasn't contamination because uh, based on contamination at the property, because these the public health orders that shut these properties down would have happened no matter what. Uh, whether the child care facilities existed or not. Which brings us to the one that came down this afternoon, which I have not yet had a chance to read, and I doubt Dan has had a chance to read, nope. which which is Harvey versus CTA, which we discussed on uh, our, our last regular episode where the court held that uh, there was a claim for retaliatory discharge and affirmed the trial court's uh, or ju- opinion of a jury or finding of a jury in favor of a plaintiff on a retaliatory discharge claim. So three three right calls this week, Dan. We'll see yep. if our predictions this week are quite as good. Yep, sounds good. Which brings us to the rule of the week. And this is a repeat rule of the week, which yep. thought was necessary after the argument recently in Northwestern Illinois Area Agency on Aging versus Basta. And... Uh, in the oral argument, very early on, counsel for the appellant gets asked, well, you didn't replead those counts that you're now challenging. He goes, yeah, we didn't because they were dismissed with prejudice. Hmm. But you didn't replead them. Yeah, we were told we couldn't. Counsel, aren't you aware of the Foxcraft rule that says that in order to preserve it, you have to replead it for the purposes of appeal? No, I wasn't aware of that. Okay. row uh, so they may not be able to challenge those counts that were dismissed with prejudice. So here's the rule in Illinois. If you have a count of your complaint that is dismissed with prejudice, uh, you must replete it in your amended pleading 
for the purposes of appeal to preserve the issue. Otherwise, it's considered abandoned. That's the rule in Illinois. It's called the Foxcraft rule. It's a very old rule. You need to follow it. <laughs> as, as, as we talk about frequently in this show with rules of the week and during cases, uh, be, being, being a litigator in any state court, any states, is you, you better know the rules and better know the particular judge's rules uh, because if you don't, things like this can happen. And it's, uh, and there are a lot of rules. I mean, it's a lot of stuff. So, but you know, if you're, if you're in the, if you're in the arena, you better know the rules of the game or, or some, uh, some bad consequences can arise. And then this may be a situation where they're out of the gate because they didn't, uh, they didn't follow uh, this rule. So we were, we, we commend it to you um, as a, it's a somewhat unique rule in Illinois for my knowledge. And so yep. make sure you follow it. So anything else on that, Dan? No, I think that's it. So with that, that brings us to the close of our episode. Appreciate everybody joining. We'll see you uh, later this week with our next regular episode. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.